everybody and welcome back to the Better Happy Podcast for Managers hosted by myself, Mike Jones. Today, I am delighted to have the pleasure of having Dan Sudegren. I've just been having a conversation pre-show to make sure I pronounce it right. Uh, As a guest speaker with us today, so Dan has got a really great background and he's just a very cool guy. Dan and I talk a lot, so I know that you're going to enjoy uh, this conversation and getting to listen to Dan for the next up to 60 minutes. In fact, I'm going to put a 60 minute time cap on it because Dan and I can talk. So <laughs> it'll go longer uh, if, if we don't um, put that time cap on. So um, what are we going to be covering? Well, Dan is very inspirational, very future focused. He's an ideas guy. And Dan's passions, and he might correct me on this, have this theme of crossing between business leadership and management, technology in the future, and happiness. And this is obviously something that Bahapi is very aligned to and what's led to Dan and I being connected in the past. So what I think we're going to end up digging down into for you listeners today is how your happiness at work is essential to work being to, to a business being it, it, the best version of itself and you being the best version of yourself and your teams being the best version of themselves and why that might be a struggle for managers and leaders and what we can do about it. And, and, and we'll link that to tech and to, and to the future of work as well. So I know that Dan's going to give us a really good overview of how work's changing and how the future is going to be different to, to what it is today, obviously, but help you really understand that and how you can be prepared for that. So what I'll do is I'll give you a little overview on Dan and it's not going to do him justice because he's got such a wide background and then I'll get him to either correct me or add anything to it. So Dan is a keynote speaker. Um, he does TED, he's, done, he's done a TEDx talk on the future of work, which you should go and Google. Uh, it's fantastic. He is a regular guest on the BBC talking about the future of work and work in general and tech. Uh, Dan's hashtags on his profile, because I always think some of these hashtags on their LinkedIn profile give us a good idea about what they're about, are the future of work, AI uh, and technology. He's been involved in so many different businesses. I think you had a big success piece at O2, so big businesses as well. Uh, and I know that you used to have something to do with promoting drum and bass companies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, we that a bit of geeking out. Um, and did you, is that the label that you used to have, like a t-shirt label that promoted drum and bass? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, bizarrely enough, yeah. The, the hemp trading company, I started that with Gav Lawson and Drew Lawson. And yeah, we did sponsor a lot of drum and bass nights and other things. And yeah, we wanted to change the world and make everyone environmental. So that was a hemp company we started. 25 years maybe 27 years i mean a long 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 time ago we tried to change the world as you might be able to tell with uh global climate warming we we failed in some respects but we gave it a go well yeah can, can you fail i don't know can you fail you see, every little thing makes a difference doesn't it absolutely we failed forward but i mean i suppose what i mean is the overriding thing we didn't save the planet but most probably that was most probably a bit too big uh, for us to go for when we were young. Your eyes peel because the planet will be safe through drum and bass. In the, in the... <laughs> I love that. That's a that's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt. That's, that's a mission. So Dan, did, did that introduce justice? Is there anything that I've missed out that you think is important for our listeners to know? Well, I tell you what, I tell you, you do a better job than uh, than, than my mum can do. Let's be fair. Uh, she still doesn't know exactly what it is that I do. Uh, even that poor Jenny, after so many years of doing stuff, but it's not her fault, of course, because as you say, I do do lots of different things. I have had the joy of having about 10 different companies. As I say, THDC was the first one I had, which was trying to save the planet using hemp. And we had did things like hemp cosmetics before the body shop. And we did hemp paper and made loads of stuff out of hemp, hemp being by basically very, very environmental, the non-narcotic version of cannabis. And my goodness, you think I can talk a lot about the future of work. I could talk an awful lot about hemp and the hemp conspiracy, but I'm not going to not gonna go for that. That's a, that's a very different chat. That's a, talk. Podcast, right? that's a different podcast. We have that podcast by the docks. I think that's a different, very different vibe in that one. Uh-huh. Uh, more left-wing than Trotsky when it comes to that bit. But anyway, point, point I suppose for the, the future of work stuff is I have had the joy of not only working lots of different organisations and for lots of different organisations, but also starting a few. And the actual motivation for your flock was I'd started quite a few tech companies and they'd failed. And the reason why they'd failed is not only because I was a bit ahead of the curve. So just but quick, actually, quickly, got, Dan, give us a quick overview on your flock. Ah, so so with your flock itself, your flock is the is a team. 
engagement platform. We're actually the employee uh, feedback platform now, and it helps people be happier at work because you can give feedback to your manager. It links into values, which is a, a bit of a, a one-off in the marketplace. It links into values and motivations of individuals, and that helps teams be together for longer and straight, uh, kind of come together and be more cohesive, and you have a stronger uh, company culture. And it, it, I really said. So I knocked you off flow there, mate. So, so the reason that, um, just just in case the listeners are thinking, what on earth your flock? So, so you was explaining why you know your other tech startups didn't work, but your flock's different. Yeah, the, the irony is, and this is the kind of terrible segue. So, thank you for pulling me up on it because I just presumed everyone knew what your flock was. But uh, the the reason why I invested, because I actually invested in your flock, Mihal Vishnevsky is the brains behind it, and I came along and because I'd done some keynotes and got a little bit of cash together, I could invest in the company. The reason why I invested in your flock was because I tried to build it about seven years before and the team had fallen apart because we didn't know each other's motivations and values enough. So actually, You had a team in one of your businesses and that team was not functioning as well as it should or basically fell apart in the end and you recognised that the reason for that was that you didn't understand each other very well, you didn't understand what each other's values were, what motivated each other, and that led to issues in the team, right? Absolutely. No, no, totally. But that happened to me several times. <laughs> I realised I was, I was emotionally unintelligent enough to realise, you know, I'm self-aware enough to realise now as I got older, my goodness, I was the problem. At the time, with such a massive ego, I didn't think that I was. Mm. But then I, even I knew there was a problem. When you've done three companies and you've had things, literally, Mike, I had an augmented reality company 14 years ago, and I turned up one day, we had three developers working, doing stuff for Man City and some other big brands. And I turned up in the office and they'd all gone. They'd left. Now, and I sat there like, you know, the marketing guy, the kind of, you know, guy who's getting the work in. And I was like, oh, they'll be back. A day later, not back. Two days later, not back. I still own the monitors, by the way, that they left in the office because those monitors cost me about nine grand. <laughs> so I keep the monitors. So what you're highlighting here is I think something that's common in teams, and I think this is probably more pronounced, and we do have quite a few business owners that listen to this as well. I think this is actually more pronounced for entrepreneurs, this problem, than it is maybe for managers, and we can dig into that more in a moment. But I get, I've never profiled you, Dan, but I get the idea that you are, you know, an extroverted ideas guy. You're very, you're very much head in the clouds, future thinking, ideas, um, and out there talking about it. Um, get 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 it known so i definitely see you as kind of up in that top right kind of extrovert uh, ideas guy now that's and, and i think you're quite extreme with that and i think that's a good thing you know that's what de- develops your profile and makes you kind of stand out the way you do and it's got you talking on the bbc and, and, and you can and you can just feel it in your vibe and it and it really makes you stand out but then there's of course people that are the exact opposite of that and many many people that work in teams um will will, will tend not to be that and I think that can create challenges for us. And, and and whether you're an extroverted ideas person or not, I think one of the big challenges that we face in life that we don't learn until we're older is that people, we're all different. And yeah. we tend to think that everybody thinks like us and we get frustrated when they don't. And I guess for you, that's quite extreme because you're probably the extreme opposite end of what most people in a team would be. Yeah, I mean, I, it took me a long time to kind of do things like insights training and then Belbin and also Myers-Briggs and all these other things. So I I already had a massive interest in psychology because I've helped people start their own businesses. Because I've done that for a decade, I kind of noticed certain you know, traits, you could say, in certain psychological moments. I also just have a massive geek. So I did sociology at university. I did law and sociology and then made it, majored in psychology. So I just... I just like the human condition. I'm just really interested in what makes people tick and the reason yeah. why people, you know, why do we have capitalism? Why do we do businesses? All these other things, you know, all these concepts that people take for granted. I like to burrow into even the, you know, to, as far as the etymology of words. I'm just a massive geek, basically. I think I'm a geek about technology. Currently. I forgot to say that on your, I wanted to say that on your intro that you just, you are a massive geek. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you've dropped it in there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I actually, even on radio, this is a sadness, but it's quite funny. Um, I went, to, they asked me to, to describe the difference between a dork, a geek, and it was it a nerd? And, and I was just like, and was, you're a bit of a tech geek, Dan, but you're not a tech nerd. So can you just explain the differences? And I was like, actually, I'm not massively sure I can, but I know there are differences. Now, I don't want to get too much into that bit, but the, yeah, the, my the, brain has absolutely gone down that pathway. I'm trying to articulate. To be fair, if you really want me, I, I can actually send you a beautiful link to a lovely video, which will show you the exact differences in a little Venn diagram. It's yeah. glorious. Anyway, point yeah. being is, is I'm much more on the geeky side of things where I will find out lots of information about stuff, but I'm also 
capable of talking to other people quite well. Now, as you rightly said though, Mike, other people, and I don't want to necessarily use the colors red and orange and yellow and blue and all these other things, but there are other people in the world that are kinesthetic learners and that are very quiet in meetings and are passionately very clever about what they do, but they might not articulate it verbally. And as you say, I would find those people frustrating now, especially in the old school tech world, you had a lot of developers who were very blue, were very kinesthetic, were very in that kind of realm, who wouldn't do things quickly enough for me because that's an impossible speed. Now, what I learned in life, though, is that not only <laughs> that I need to be able to uh, manage and help developers develop themselves in some respects, but also got to be very aware that other people are very different to me. And you, I can get people to a breaking point without even knowing that they're at the breaking point. Now, this links into if your flock had existed, and before when I invested in it, it's actually called Macaulay, but that's a different conversation. But if your flock had existed, I at least would have known what the motivations were, what their values were, and what their motivations were. I also would have got feedback from them every week to know that they were getting near breaking point. But that would have been really important to me. And then I most probably would have saved those businesses. I'm not it's, saying I would have. It's something that's really important, I think, for anybody in a management and leadership position to understand. And what you've just explained there is that by you just being you, and by you living to your strengths and doing what comes naturally to you and being passionate, you were were essentially without the other stuff surrounding you, you know, the support of, of data and insights into what your team were and, the, and, the, and that awareness piece around the fact that people are different. You were essentially making your teams miserable or making yeah. them not like you very much, not through any malice. And this is such an important thing for managers and leaders to understand. It's not when you're nine times out of 10, when your manager or your leader is being what you would describe as being a dick. <laughs> they're actually not doing that through malice. They're just being themselves and they're very different to you and they haven't had the training or support or guidance to realize that that is something that you struggle with. And I think this is an important thing for employees to understand as well, because I've, I've been there. I've, I've, I've had some managers that were genuinely not good people and they just <laughs> genuinely only cared about themselves and, and, you know, and their own development and their own career progression and nothing else. So that's the worst thing in the world. But I've also had a lot of managers that were really hard to work with, but not because they were being dicks, just because they didn't recognize that people were different to them and their way of communicating and their passions were draining on the team if they weren't communicating in a certain way. So I think that's a really important thing to understand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, don't get me wrong. I had like, I now have on my wall, you know, the whole don't be a dick thing, which I think is truly, truly hugely important. But it's to continually remind me as a reformed dick myself that my default status is of being a dick. That is literally my default, right? Because if you believe in my Briggs, are you being a dick, or are you just doing what's what you're passionate about, which is hard for people that aren't wired like you to comprehend and embrace? Is it that you're actually being a dick? Because I would say being a dick is. Yeah, that's probably a bit of both. I think being a dick is like you know driving the team too hard, knowing that you're doing it. And just not giving, not giving a, not giving a shit. Whereas, oh right, yeah, no, no, that's that's not that's that's me. No, it's it, it's more, it's more uh, dick by uh, by accident rather than dick on purpose. Uh, you know, and, and I know some people, and again, we've got to be careful with words. But again, if you look at the etymology of the word, you know, why do we call people dicks? Like we could really get into the reason why that's not a bad way of putting it, because mm -hmm. you know they stand up in public, they do things that are a bit annoying, they interrupt, you know, all these things which are very you know, penis-like, let's be frank about it. Um, so, so, you know, you could go into the whole phallocentric nature society and the whole thing about, you know, maternity. I'm, I'm already visioning some great little cutouts from this podcast. <laughs> don't worry, yeah. Just don't, don't be a dick, one's absolutely fine. And, yeah, and again, you know, the reason why people are sometimes lack empathy and understanding, sometimes it's to do with a, a lack of ability by themselves, but also, as you rightly, wisely said, a lack of training and also a lack of actual data and feedback, yeah? So the reason why your flock and our mission is to help a million people be happier at work. The reason why we get so excited by this is because actually sometimes it's just one of the things that managers don't have is enough time. They believe they don't have enough time to manage people. Mm -hmm. Now we could get into this whole thing about what do you really want in life? Do you want managers? Do you want leaders? Leaders are much more likely to coach. They're much more likely to be empathetic. They're much more likely to give themselves time. They're much more likely to have visions. Leadership's really important. And I believe in this whole concept of servant leadership and that's, personally changed my life with the way I looked at hey, how do you become successful and because I was always in marketing or service agencies or you know creating tech or whatever these other things are I mean, as you say normally a little bit ahead of the game usually by about 15 years 
I could create a culture where it was very fast paced, where it was very breakneck speed and where it was always wanting perfection and excellence, where actually that isn't helpful for everybody. And so you, all you can do, you just burn people out if you're not absolutely aware of what you're doing. And I, that's what I like about your flock because it gave me the feedback that I would need to be able to listen to people properly because it allowed me to look at their motivations their values as well, not, not, not brand values, but not my values as the boss, but the whole team's values, look at their motivations. And even if it just started the conversation, like, you know, for example, most people wouldn't think of it instantly meeting me, but one of my big ones is caring. Yeah. So if the, if your flock didn't have a social impact to it, I most probably wouldn't do it. It's one of my big kind of core motivators. Another one is one of what I lack though is adaptability. There's a good one. So if somebody's more adaptable than I am, and they keep changing things about things, I might get frustrated. But the fact that I'll know that their adaptability score is high means that I can give, you know, we go, well, their adaptability score is high, mine's very low. Another classic example would be my favorite one, which is recognition. My need personally for recognition is very high. My co-founders is very low. And so Mihel, like literally, he's just like, all oh, right, I have to remember that you have to, I have to say thank you for Dan for doing that thing, because if I don't, I'm not showing, you know, there's no recognition, he's going to get cross. Now that takes emotional understanding, but that emotional understanding can happily come from a machine because it's not a deep thing. It's just a knowledge thing. So, so, so I don't, we've, we're identifying a problem, which I think any manager or any leader will be nodding their head to. And that is this, you're wired in a certain way. And often the manager or the leader, especially, especially the entrepreneurial leader, I would say maybe, maybe more pronounced is going to be quite different and they're put together to to much of the team um and i think this is a, a challenge for managers because typically speaking and this is a very simple overview people in a team tend to be more structured and stability and they like that routine and repeatability yeah that's why they're there they like to make the stuff happen and do it on repeat and typically speaking the person in the leadership role is ideas driven and innovative and think about how to make things better and, and constantly reinvent the wheel now obviously there's going to be a, a uh, attraction there um when the when the leader person is coming to the team and going right this is the problem that we need to solve these were the new ideas i've had run with it and typically leaders get really frustrated because the team are like no mate you know <laughs> you know why would I? and then you're like why aren't you as excited about this as i am and you're like well because they're wired differently but we don't recognize that and then we get frustrated then you end up hating your team and then your team end up hating you so i think that's a common issue and i think the unique challenge with that for a manager is a manager typically, again, typically speaking, isn't naturally entrepreneurial all the time. Yeah. They've come through the team and they've then found themselves in this middle position where they're used to keeping things the way they were and liking it like that. But now they've got to embrace actually thinking about new ways of doing things and getting the teams buy into that, whereas they might still be a little bit hardwired to, to, to want to keep everything the same themselves. So it's they're getting kind of pulled in two directions. So I think that's a, a very common challenge and I think you know it's definitely underrated the mental health challenges that you go through going from being a team player to a manager to a leader you know if you've naturally gone into leadership then you're probably just playing to your strengths but if you've gone from being in a team and you and, and you've recognized for being a great team player then you get put into management or leadership it's kind of like look you've got to start doing things in a completely different way and, oh, and you're going to find that stuff about yourself that you that you've never encountered before so so you, I think we've identified this issue that you encountered, you know, and, and you know, the, the outcomes of it for you were three teams where they, they kind of ran out and you all got really fed up with you and you ended up feeling like you were being a dick, even though you probably weren't, you're just being Dan. So, and then obviously your flocks helped you address this. Can, can you summarize what would your flock, so forget the technology for a minute. Imagine your flock isn't tech. Imagine your flock is just a methodology that you utilized to, to help you address these problems. How would you, how would you explain to somebody, maybe in a management or leadership position, this this methodology? What's the key components of your flock that they would need to consider? Because I think people get lost when they start thinking about tech. But if we just help them understand the the core principles that lay underneath it and how they've helped you, I think that would be really useful. Well, it's funny you say that because your flock actually came. It was Macaulay. Macaulay was um, wasn't a piece of tech. You know, I, I came on board as the, the tech person and because I wanted to digitally transform something, we had a consultancy that we could digitally transform and make it into a software as a service product because yep. that's a scalable proposition. Um, yep. And really, it, when our first tool was actually helping consultants go out there and do the methodology 
and then you know helping themselves so you didn't have to do the whole of the macaulay practice yeah. but the idea was you would then know enough so we had people like brand consultants using it hr consultants using it all sorts of different consultants but to answer your question it's the power of feedback you know it's 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 really about that it's about can employees have a voice yes they should have a voice they should be able to give feedback and they should be able to um help develop the company culture and understanding when people don't do that or when they're not allowed to do that or they feel more importantly when they feel that they're not allowed to do that and not part of work they don't feel they belong this is why we have massive amounts of employee disengagement you know yeah. the, the stats on it are just appalling this is why productivity is going down because people do not feel engaged at work now the issue you have around that this is why i'm so passionate about it is you can't just pay people more money and get them more engaged because that's not how it works if it was life would be easy because everybody you in the banking sector would be happy everybody absolutely yeah exactly lawyers would be ecstatic yeah. everyone in banking would be great everyone would like you know what i mean it would be easy you just pay them in diamonds you pay them more diamonds and then everyone's happier it yeah. doesn't work yeah. okay. now this is great that it doesn't work because otherwise life itself would be intrinsically boring but actually most of work is something around purpose you know autonomy mastery purpose these things is what you've got to give you know highly excelling teams right now your point was a really good one which is around the size of the team this is what we find with your flock as well so the bigger the team and then the bigger the company potentially the bigger the problems you have with this cultural piece to a certain degree yeah yep. and it seems to be this the kind of the danger point comes between just slightly more than a family mm -hmm. yeah and you know I hate, to say, I hate to say the word family but let's say family size more than eight people in the team yep going up to I don't you should never have more than 20 people in the team anyway but more than 30 people in the company yeah because then you get this how many teams have you got who's doing what and also you have the uh, thing which I think you're already guessing might you have that thing where the top people the leadership as you were saying they must probably have a certain view of the world yeah but actually not everyone always shares it yeah. now this becomes particularly acute and you would right to say about being an entrepreneur as you're growing the business from like four people to eight people to ten people yeah then you seem to better hold it together yeah but the problem we now have is hybrid work has made that even harder so people are working hybridly they're not always in the office they're not always in the, the around the campfire together and as the business grows so people grow apart and so therefore you get huge amounts of churn rate and as i say lawyers have a tremendous employee retention problem you know the banking sector isn't doing great but if you look at most organizations right now there is a problem with the great resignation and people leaving it's costing us billions of pounds for people to not really love their work it's more mm. important than people think it's not just a hippie immaterial thing it's a literal it costs you lots of money if people leave it costs lots of money there's a massive dip in team morale and you can have issues now some of that comes from your point earlier which was also great hey, to recruit right. people people have got to cover that role while that person's gone and that's one of the number one reasons that people suffer with stress at work when they're covering more than one role because and this all comes down to because people want to do a good job so people feel like they're spread between two roles and they can no longer do their job well they become unhappy so you know the costs of losing staff is more than what people realize and the lost opportunity if you've got a down in your business and he's been there for five years and he knows the business on the back of his hand he knows he, he knows everything he knows the clients he, he knows how the, the system works and then dan leaves you, you're not getting somebody up to that standard for at least two years well lost opportunity but also the, as you said the morale cost of that is tremendously high but also in things like marketing creative industries it's you lose the clients as well because clients will move with people sometimes so there's a whole host of things like keeping your team together and everyone happy is your is your superhuman power you know it's a superpower in business which people forget it's a bit like when people forget that return business is the most important thing you know repeat customers are the most important thing but actually it's keeping your employees happy is way happy you know for, I think Richard Branson right he says it you know, that's the number one thing keep your people happy and you'll have happy customers and you'll have a good they, business they, they, people think that the customer is the you know keeping your customer happy is the prime focus but keeping your employees is happy is the prime focus because if you keep your employees happy they'll attract and more customers and keep them happy for you absolutely and I, and I you know and again i've got to be careful with words only because your flock works we don't tend to work with businesses that are more than 100 people strong mm -hmm. so i can't really talk about large businesses but anyone that's got more than 250 people in it i can't really talk about because we don't work with massive companies but i would imagine that those problems especially around hybrid etc have become more acute i imagine churn rates are going up with larger businesses i think there's a lot of attraction for especially certain generations and again 
I do have a bit of data behind this. But I, I, I have a theory for this, and I think the theory stands true across the different points that you've made. So when you've got a smaller team, maybe around eight, it's easier to to avoid those issues. But as you've explained through your own experience, and, and I've got experience with it as well, because you, you can still struggle if you're not if, if that person that's leading that small team is isn't doing the right things. Yeah, true. So so that's that's still there. But I think as soon as you get past that small family team, the issue you've got is everybody wants to know they're doing a good job. Everybody wants to feel purpose and passion for their work. And the only way that you find your purpose and your passion for your work is by being connected to the essence of the company, the story, the vision, the mission. And communication's hard. And what I think happens in most businesses, big and small, is the essence of the company hasn't been codified it's in the person that's leading it or leading the team so when people are around that person even though it's not been codified and written and the values aren't clear and all this stuff it doesn't matter because they're close to that person that just kind of lives and breathes it so they kind of still get the essence of it and they still get excited every day whereas as soon as that person can't be around everybody all the time you've got multiple teams or people in hybrid locations because that's because that culture and that uh, that that purpose of the business hasn't been codified and they're not around that person work very quickly starts to feel like a, a, a never-ending list of meaningless tasks that don't make you feel very happy in life yep. so then that's why it's more of a challenge when you're remote i think that's why it's more of a challenge when you're big because you're away from the court the, the essence of the business which is coming from that person which is what has to be codified well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the other thing is we've got to be aware that there's a big difference between remote forced and remote first. So there's a lot of companies that have been built brilliantly into very successfully, but with a remote first culture. You know, this whole, you know, this, this, you know, I, didn't, I never thought it happened in my lifetime, but you know, we have had the biggest experiment when it came to work that's ever happened. That was the global pandemic. And it's something that was so traumatic, people still don't really talk about it. They go, you know, that COVID thing, goes, oh, what COVID? No, I don't talk about it. Which proves how bloody bad it was and proves how traumatic it was. It was a tremendously bad thing that happened. And we've got to give each other, it was amazing me. People are like talking, productivity is going down, down. I'm like, yeah, but that's because we had two years of trauma and it's like less than five years afterwards. I mean, the reaction to that, it's just so amazing how many business leaders aren't understanding that there is still a reaction in the system because we're human beings, yeah? Mm -hmm. you know, let alone the massive changes with hybrid work. Now, if you were remote first rather than remote forced, you thrived most probably in the pandemic. You most probably did very really well because you were built around not having a company culture around the campfire. You know, you had mechanisms in place that you were already were doing. So it may not have been so painful. I can't say, I'm not saying that COVID therefore wasn't an issue for them as a person or as a business. I'm just saying that remote first is important, right? Then you look at something like hybrid work. Hybrids kind of snuck up on this because most people didn't want to go purely remote. And there's a human need potentially, I think, and I'm going to say potentially because I think there's potentially of certain human beings, not all, that want to see each other in an office environment. Or I'm going to get rid of the word office, in an environment of togetherness. I've, I've seen some data that, that obviously you can see data on everything. You don't know how accurate the data is, but I have seen some data that, that was pointing out and it made sense to me that optimal productivity seems to be found in general around hybrid working. So two, two or three days in office, two or three yeah. days out of office. And once the extreme goes, so if it's all working from home, productivity drops. If it's all in the office, productivity drops. But actually when it's balanced the two, which gives people human interaction and the ability to balance their lives and spend time with their families, that's when the magic seems to happen. That's what the data I've seen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, we've got to be a little bit careful because, you know, that's the data based on now and it has been for the last two years. But obviously you go back 10 years. I mean, I, I was remote working because I did consultancy stuff. I've never had offices really. You know, yeah. so we were all, and then if I had teams, they were mainly remote because I'd, I'd hire across the world. So that to me was just the norm. But of course that I was, I think it was 4% of people were remote working before the pandemic. Uh, 4%, that is not 40%, 4% were remote working, right? Yeah. Now, imagine that change when it then went up to knowledge, you know, the knowledge world, it went up to something like 80 or 90%. We were forced to do it, yeah? Mm -hmm. Now that's, in, that's an insane change, right? Even if it comes down back to about 40%, that is still 10 times higher than it was a decade ago or five years ago. Now, think about this, the absolute paradigm shift that is. It's insane. It's, no one really thinks about this. One goes, oh, yeah, of course, we're just doing hybrid work. There's a massive change. It's huge. Yeah. Human beings and productivity goes up. Yes, because we like to spend time at home. And you know, by the way, just quick one on the hybrid work. 
it always makes me smile because most people's leaders or bosses were hybrid working before the pandemic, by the way. That's an absolute fact. So the C-suite were already, were already doing it. It was just the rest of us working in the fields, doing yeah. back-breaking labour, doing a commute and going nine to five. It was just the rest of us. It was a 99% of us. Oh, that minds. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it just made me smile. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, what does your boss do? Well, he's not always in the office. No shit. I mean, who knows? No shit, Sherlock. No, he's not. It is the thing that business owners small business owners especially and newer business owners really struggle with though right it's just something that they find difficult as well so i think an experienced business owner is good at removing themselves from the business and making it self-sufficient but new business owners um really struggle with that they, they feel like they have to be there all the time and it's it's this massive mental shift to try and to try and remove themselves and you know i think that that gives you an insight into the 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 mental challenges of not being at work all the time surely we're hardwired to spend most of our days working with the community well, again, I'm not going to say yes or no to that because that's a much, much deeper conversation. But there is a an element, again, you know, basically, we've just got to do this, but in a conscious way. Yeah. So we've got an opportunity here to be consciously working together and to consciously go into the into a shared space and to con you know, consciously design the future of work. Now, the problem you have, of course, is the reset is that we don't do that. You've got to remember, we came out of the fields, for crying out loud, as agriculture. Then we came out of the fields and we went into factories. And then the factories had offices. And then we went into offices. People mm -hmm. forget the history of work. Yeah? Yeah. Everyone goes, well, that's because human beings are designed to do it. No, they're not. They're not designed to go into offices. Of course they're not. That's ridiculous. Otherwise, agriculture wouldn't really have worked because we weren't in offices. Yeah? We're designed to work in teams. Yes, team dynamics mm -hmm. are important. That is very true. We're designed to want to align our motivations to something bigger than ourselves and to yep. create value. Yes, very true. Doesn't need an office space to do that. Now, your flock helps because in that hybrid world, you're most probably not having those company culture conversations as much as you would have if you were all forced together around a, around a table. Yeah, this is the exact same. Now, same principle with all kind of leaders or managers. Sometimes you'd have a really good manager, but their job would be, you know, they'd manage the team, but they'd bump into people and have little chats and things like that around the office. And that's that was part of your role, wasn't it? As a leader, you'd have chats with people and da-da-da. You wouldn't call it an HR chat, but you just bump into people. You know, you just create this, this fun, as you said before, this culture. If you get rid of the centralized space, that becomes more problematical to do. Yeah, just because it just does, because it's harder to do because you can't just go, oh, just pop on a Zoom call for two minutes. Now, you should, by the way, because there's no difference to popping on a Zoom call for two minutes than just saying, oh, let's have a quick chat over a cup of coffee. There's no difference at all. But human beings think there's a bit of a difference. Anyway, that's. that's I, I have an insight on this, and you, on, you, may, you may agree, you may disagree. And I think this is basically what's happening with everything. So let me, this is going to feel like a massive tangent. So, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's definitely aligned so think about health and fitness right so for, for most of human history health and fitness a level of it has been provided by life just due to the way that we had to live we only had natural foods available to us we had yep. to move on a daily basis uh and then what's happened more recently is the that being given to you by life as a requirement has been removed okay so now you can eat processed food you can eat whatever food you want now you don't have to exercise in fact life doesn't encourage it now, what it doesn't mean is you can't any be healthy anymore. In fact, you can be healthier than we've ever been uh, if you're disciplined with it and you're very structured with it. And I and I think that's the theme that, that's happening in life. So I think it's the same with work. So, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, we had interaction with people. We naturally used our strengths. We worked towards a purpose that was higher than ourselves, which was survival and a better quality of life. And that was just guaranteed. You didn't even have to think about it. Now, today work can 100% still provide those things and does probably more so than it did before you know we can work towards meaningful causes we can have meaningful interactions we can have meaningful relationships we can we can go into roles that are hyper aligned to our strengths mm -hmm. but we have to be very disciplined with it today because it's not just a given anymore in fact you know we, it, without some structure and process in place we might not even speak to anybody at work and that's bad so it's like these things are still here in fact they can be better than they've ever been but We've got to be really structured and disciplined in how we make them happen. No, absolutely. I think you're, the, the metaphor there is absolutely perfect for it. And, you know, how you do one thing in life is how you do everything in life, as some people would say. And you're totally right. You know, the whole processed food uh, situation and people, you know, eating themselves into unhealthy habits and you know, all this different stuff, sedentary work and, you know, all these things. Now, if you want to become hyper productive or just productive or like you've got the opportunity now to do more than we've ever done before, You've got to be more quicker than ever before yeah now but you've still you've got to have discipline you've got to have discipline you've got to have structure you've got to have understanding you've got to do this now i would argue therefore that's what leadership are meant to provide leadership are meant to provide you with the signposting 
to then you better understand and better personally develop yourself in whatever work environment exists. So yeah. if you're hybrid working and your leaders are not explaining how to do that more effectively, that mm-hmm. is a problem that they need to look at themselves. This is not something that your flock does, by the way. Your and flock doesn't, doesn't do that. And it's the same with management, right? It's like, look, yeah. you, you can, management feels harder now than it's ever done before because things are changing faster and you've got to, you've got to manage change and you, the uncertain and you've got multiple responsibilities compared to even just 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But with discipline and structure and process, being a manager now can be more rewarding than it's ever been before. You can get better results. You can have a better relationship with your team and you can have a better work-life balance, but, yeah. but it's extreme, isn't it? It's like, look, that it, you can be even better than you've ever been before in history, but you do have to put more effort in to yeah. make it happen. And you do need more structure and systems. Absolutely. But the, not, not an issue that I have with that. The, it, basically we seem to be sometimes lacking self-agency when it comes to managerial roles and leadership roles. Like people are like, I'm a, you know, I, the problem is, Mike, this is what happens so often with lots of our clients is that the manager didn't want to become a manager. They were very good at what they did. And because they were very good, I'll give you a great example. Lawyers, really good at billing, really good lawyer. Therefore, we made him the boss of these six lawyers. Hates being a manager, hates being any of these things, hates his job, hates her job. Now, this happens again in marketing agencies, account director, you know, da, 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 then becomes a senior, then has a team. Da, da. Right. This happens again. But they actually never wanted it. They wanted the money, yeah, because because everyone wants an extra bit of cash. And maybe they would have said yes to the responsibility. Maybe they really liked the leader they had, and they were like, oh. But then they don't get any training on it. Because yeah. So this is my question: Do they genuinely not want it? And I think this is a really important thing to go down because I think many managers listening to this and leaders listening to this will be having this internal dialogue: Do I actually want this? You know, it was much easier when I was doing the other thing. So is the reason generally speaking obviously it's going to be different on case by case but do you think generally from your exposure to people the reason that they are having that dialogue where it's like i didn't even want this it's too hard is that because they just genuinely don't want it and they took it for the money and it was a poor 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 decision or is it because they haven't had the support and development they need support and development they need to do in that position so they don't feel like they're doing a good job so they're just beating themselves up I think it's most probably more likely to be the second one. But of course, we also have that in life that that all growth is outside your comfort zone. So you've always got that problem as well. You know, if your if your leader says to you, I really believe in what you're doing, I'm going to support you. And I want you to become a leader, too. I want you to lead this team. That's a great conversation. As long as they then do that, and as long as everyone shares similar motivations. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about culture fit. People always think I'm talking about, you know, culture. Fit. It should be about culture ad when you're adding people. So it's not about everyone looking and being the same. I'm massively into diversity and inclusion because it, you make better teams. You actually make yep. better and we make a better society. Yeah. So this is not talking about everyone looking like Mike and being hired by Mike and Mike hires his friends. That creates a terrible company, a terrible team. Believe me, from someone who's done that, don't do it. Right. <laughs> right. Also, that team won't ever grow past the, you know, 10 people sized anyway. Now, this is a deep point that you're talking about. Sometimes the leader themselves doesn't want the team to grow any bigger because then they lose control. Now that's okay because that's just ego and that's totally fine. But I'm not here to say every company needs to not be a lifestyle business and has to employ 200 people. I'm not from the government. I don't care how many people you employ. I care that they're happy. Mm-hmm. And so if everyone's happy together and it's a small team, that's totally fine. You don't have to grow the business. But because that will take you out of your comfort zone. And this is the same for all managers or all people who might have management for leadership foisted upon them. It's outside the comfort zone, but you have to give them the tools and technology to help that personal development and their understanding of team dynamics, which we're not inherently given as human beings. It's not something like being social. It's an understanding that perhaps technology can help with, yes, but it need, you need support and training. So, so... What would you say is the let's let's forget the technology for a bit because I think people will go oh tech is you know that it creates a barrier to people that they a mental barrier so so let, let let's just remove that word technology and just assume you're back in the consultant days before you um, turn your flock into into a SaaS what would you say are the basic components that a struggling manager or leader needs to work on learning about and implementing to go from this is hard work to this is actually quite rewarding and i'm enjoying this role well here's a weird one for you i'm going to start off with a bigger one which is there's only three things in life time money and energy 
Yeah, uh, you can argue the energy point, but please don't. It's all about metaphysics. No need, right? It's energy, energy, matter condensed, slower vibration creates matter. It's fine. Anyway, I don't know if that's true. Please don't pull me up on it if it isn't. Just, just go with it. So, money, time, and energy. Yeah. I'm so, the, the, the more the more time you've got for this kind of stuff, and the more energy you can put into it, that's really, really important. It's a bit like you know, most relationships I think with human beings is if you can give people more time and you have more empathy and understanding and you're not time pressured all the time. One of the biggest things that uh, new managers say is they don't have time to manage people. And I always think that's quite ironic because it's like, that's your job. If your job is to manage people, but you don't have time to manage people, then there's an issue somewhere else. Well, that's a mindset shift, right? Because before you got to manager, for years and years and years, you got recognized and rewarded and got results through being busy when you're on shift. So now you're in management role, it feels very unnatural to start taking time away from being busy to take time on planning, to take time on listening to your teams. It's going to feel difficult. It's going to feel natural. It's going to feel you genuine, genuinely will feel an emotional discomfort when you're doing those things at the beginning because you're conditioned to be busy. And that's what's always worked for you. Absolutely. And that whole kind of, and again, this is if you create metrics for success, which are around that busyness yeah, and not having the time to talk to people. Like if your leader said to you, right, Dad, uh, Mike, I want you to do uh, at least spend 10 hours this week talking to the team because that's your job. If you don't do the 10 hours, right, that's going to be an issue because that's your, you know, I'm very results focused. That's most probably a bit hardcore. <laughs> People just go, 10 hours or you're going to be fine. I'm you know, still still getting over being a dick because you, you might be the guest. So, <laughs> so but if, if you put the metrics for success based on that and that quality, and this is how, by the way, you create good cultures is you do put metrics for success on other things. So, you know, if you've got, and people laugh when I say this, but if you've got a happiness person in your team mm. or in your business, or if you've got a culture person in the team or in the business, it's not HR because HR means it's too late. Yeah. So you have things like how much work, are you, you know, for example, if you knew the motivations of your team was around caring, but how much have we done this week, which is caring? And you don't need technology to find that feedback because you can ask everyone and say, hey, I know you're really into the charity work we've been doing. Great. OK, I want you to lead on the charity stuff. So let's see how many we can do you know, the next year. If that person was particularly that. Now, you could have this is a lovely one. If someone's particularly autonomous, then they will naturally be better or naturally feel better doing hybrid work. Yep. Yeah than someone who isn't. Now, if you're really into teamwork, and again, this changes with generation and time, you know, it, it, the, your flock profile is not, oh, it's done every three months. It's not just, this is your profile, welcome to the world, you're an ENTP, which is what, you know, other people will do and say you're that forever. By the way, I can't change being an ENTP. I've tried for a decade, still can't get to be an ENTJ. Really tried, personally tried it, could, haven't been able to change it. Anyway, so so these things are fluid, yeah? But if you know that someone's more into autonomy this this quarter, then great, then you know that they're going to be okay doing more hybrid work. This is the kind of real world example. Or for example, if you knew them personally, you knew they really buzzed in teamwork and they love working together as a team. Well, then you want to bring those people together in teams more and see each other more because that's what they're about. They love collaboration. Now this changes, Mike, when it's different sectors. So we know that marketing and advertising companies, there when they do these things, teamwork's really high for them. Mm. But actually for lawyers, it's really low. Yeah, which makes sense, doesn't it, right? You're going to be more creative and... And, and generally the results that are achieved through marketing and advertising generally need multiple heads on it whereas lawyer is one person with a lot of knowledge that can go through a process absolutely right so, so, so again i don't think any of these things i mean don't get me wrong not, not in a bad way but um, i don't think anything is particularly a wow when it comes to sectors but when it comes to individual teams you might find a different so you might work in a marketing and you know, an advertising team and actually one of your teams is very different to the other team yeah, I think Stephen Bartlett says this, and I think he's right to, whether you're a fan of his or not, that actually a company is made up of lots of different cultures because yep. each team has a different culture. Yep. If you don't have that level of understanding around the teams, then the, you're going to have a problem when it comes to the C-suite because mm. C-suite is own, sometimes its own team. By the way, it's really interesting to notice how much they're not a team because technically they're the heads of teams, not a team. Everyone always thinks they're going to be together. Anyway, so for example, finance. Well, right. That's one of those big challenges in big businesses, making sure that your C-suite actually function as a team. Absolutely. One of the biggest individuals challenges. running departments, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest challenges. And again, I then go down to this links into if their values and motivations align, then then that's a, you know, that's a strong foundation of that moment of trust. But again, you know, we don't work with massive companies, but I know it's a huge issue for, for larger businesses. For the companies that we work with, we know that we can help their employee, and I hate to say the word employee retention, but help people stay around in their business for longer and be happier at work because they align on their motivations and values. And that can only come through knowledge. Now, 
I don't know how you would, you might be able to do workshops on this where you would go in and you'd all chat about it and you'd be able to do it. But I'll be honest with you, Mike, I'd forget stuff if I had 10 people. I'd be like, ah, oh, Ben, is he, is he autonomous? Like, ah, oh, I can't, because I'm, you know, I, just because I'm old, my memory's terrible. <laughs> it makes me think of Ray Dalio, right? So he, he, his company's been studied by psychologists. You know, I can't remember the name of it. Is it Bra- it's Bra- Bridgewater. Bridgewater, right, Bridgewater. So, and they, he talks about this. So he loves profiling for this exact reason. So I think, by the way, summary of what you're getting at here is number one, to, to be good managers and good leaders, you've got to give yourself time to spend with your team and develop them and lead them. Number two, you've got to use whatever tool it is, whether it's your flock or anything else, you've got to uh, accept the concept that you need to, that people are different and you need to have some kind of process in place to understand people's motivations, values and their profile and their, their, their personality types. Um, and yeah, Ray, uh, Ray Dalio talks about that, about having like baseball cards. So like a little, almost like a Pokemon card or a football card. So you can just look at somebody on a page and go, and we do a version of this at the Happy as well. We do like power profiling, but just look at somebody on a page and just have some idea of what that person's about, how they like to communicate, what motivates them, what their values are. You know, that's, yeah. that's you just know that people are different to you and that that's going to require a slightly different, uh, approach but then you also need some unifying values to to to, to unify well, you as a team the reason why i'm smiling so much is because one of the the slightly bigger design ideas of your flock was to do exactly those cards technically yeah. now you get your flock profile and it comes down and says you're three top things and of course if we can then we then amalgamate all that together with some machine learning some other stuff and you can, therefore you can get your team culture and your team culture map which is a little spider diagram yeah. and then you can see different teams how do they align together in the company and again you can see how it aligns together and we are not in any way saying it all needs to look the same what we're saying is notice the differences and start the conversation your yeah. flock is not there to stop the conversations it's the exact opposite it's to start those conversations but also with some technical knowledge behind it you know so i don't want to bring it into football or any of the sport but you know if you know that they're a particularly strong midfielder and then you put them in defense then that might not work as well because they're in a defense or put them in goal and then why did you put them in goal? Well, I didn't know. I thought they looked like a goalkeeper. They had big hands. You know? yeah, and if you had like a, uh, you know, if you had a college athletics team and you had a gold standard shot putter and you put he or she into the 800 meter race, then, well, they might do all right, actually, but probably, you know, put them, <laughs> put, put them into the 1500 meter race and they're going to not feel like a very good athlete. They're not going to feel good about themselves. And you're going to look at them and go, they're not a great performer, but it's not the fact that they're not a great performer. You've just not put them in a role that's aligned to who they are. That, 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 you know, and I think there was, I can't remember, so, but I always look at that lovely meme where it's talked about, you know, there's, a, there's an elephant and a giraffe and a, you know, a goldfish or whatever. And they say, you know, the next thing is to climb that tree and, uh, you know, whoever does it, they, they win. It's so obviously the monkey wins and therefore, you know, obviously they're the cleverest thing there. And of course, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's playing to your strengths. It's playing to those strengths. Knowing yourself, self-awareness is going to be key. Giving yourself time to, to, to kind of implement these things, but also rewarding yourself when you do it. That's what a good leader does. You know? yeah. it's a friend of mine who's a brilliant business and they've grown and have been very successful. I met him more than a decade ago and I always remember what he said. He said, my job as CEO is to create the conditions for them to all succeed and to personally develop. And that was his whole thing. His whole thing was literally, it's not about making money at all. It's just, how do I create the conditions? My sole job is creating the conditions where they can excel and be excellent. And also uh, we can all succeed and personally develop. Now, if you've got a leader like that, which is about servant leadership, if you have a leader like that, they might not. I mean, it's always good to add in a bit of uh, knowledge underneath that and some workshops and some other stuff you can do, but that's a good foundation for understanding. Do you, do you think... Uh, uh, and I think it's something that's worth considering. I'm just conscious of time, coming to our last ten minutes. But do you think? Because I'm thinking, I'm putting my mind, I'm putting myself into the shoes of, of, of a manager or a leader. Is there a risk of putting so much emphasis on trying to make your teams happy and do everything for your teams that you neglect the business side of it and the results? Again, I don't think so. Because if you've delegated to the right people, you have other people. It depends how big the business is. If you've got three people in the business now, I don't think that's going to work. But again, you must already need it to create it to, to make it go to seven. Every time is always going to be a financial pressure to say, actually, this isn't important. Exactly right. So, you know, you, you, you at some level, at some person, there needs to be, it's, it's, it's going to be much easier to focus on developing and looking after your team if the business is making money now of course the business is going to make more money if the team's happy and engaged but there's there's got to be a trade-off right yeah i mean and again without being uh, silly about it i'm a great believer in that happiness provides success 
So if people are happy, then they're more, you're more likely to be successful. So again, if you're trying to force people into sales who aren't really into sales and not that kind of personality type and don't really do that thing. But of course, underneath it all, you still have to have a product that people want to be able to buy. Yeah, so there's a bigger issue about, you know, if you're selling something which is rubbish, then that's a deeper issue. No, no great company culture would get away, I think, nowadays in later stage capitalism with a product which doesn't work. Yeah. So I think we have to overcome the whole kind of, does the thing work? Can people sell it? Are people happy buying it? And then can we build a great team? That kind of comes later. So product, 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 then, but, you know, then, then blockbuster probably. Yeah, yeah. had some really happy people. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. No matter how happy those teams were, if they weren't innovating at that high level, which, which would have been more likely to happy, happen with, you know, an engaged leadership team that were communicating well. Yeah, absolutely. But all, I mean, that's the other thing. We talk about innovation and we'll, we, we open a Pandora's box when we talk about AI now. But, you know, the future of work is likely to be this. And this next jump that we're going to have with AI, AI becoming the, the superpower for, I don't know, a good 80% of people in the knowledge world and the knowledge sectors, this changes everything fundamentally for a lot of sectors, which is way out the scope of this conversation. But it's really important that we understand that that company culture that you have and that uh, togetherness, that's going to be put under immense strain in the next year and a half because of AI. Yeah. And management and leaders have to make some very, very big calls very, very quickly, um, which will include themselves. You know, if they're not feeling engaged at work, if they're not 100 percent happy, I mean, this is what my TEDx talk was about. It literally is the future of work is not what you think. It's what you love. And the reason why it's what you love is because loving is what the machines can't do. If yeah. you're not hyper engaged in your work and if you don't love what you're going to be doing, in the next couple of years, you are going to find that you will not have jobs. And everyone gets very uh, passionate about that because they honestly believe I'm saying that, you know, I want people to be fired. No, not that. It's the fact that if you can be 10 times more productive at something that you love doing, you will win in the marketplace. It's just yeah. how it works. It's just yeah. how life works. Yeah. And what we've got now is not just computers. It's artificial intelligence. So it won't be AI that replaces your job. It's somebody who's using AI that yeah. will replace you. Now you add to that hybrid work, yep, where, which had the potential to create hyper-productive individuals who are loving what they do, hybrid working and being ultra-productive, yeah, and with radical flexibility. He talked about Ray Dalio's company there. He talks about uh, rounded uh, kind of candor and, and radical flexibility. And this is exactly it. If you look at radical, radical flexibility, this is not just about you know, where we work and when we work, but how and all these other cool, cool things. Look at how more productive those people are you add to that ai and you literally could have a team of 10 people being replaced by two now i'm not that you know sorry it sounds awful i don't i mind the fact that people are not going to be employed because i don't think ramp you know rampant unemployment is going to be good for our society we have to have universal basic income and some other things that are politically very uh, unpalatable at this moment in time but that change is coming and I would advise everybody that they get on the right side of history on this one and they look at what do they love doing the most and they look at how they can use technology and AI to help them become super productive. And it could be, Mike, this is what's so exciting. It could be the fact that instead of getting rid of people, you just go, right, everyone works a two day working week. Yeah. You know, we actually share jobs. Why can't we just share, Mike? That's my point. Why don't we just share? Work less, see our families more, be happier and be nice to the planet. In theory, we could have started doing that once the internet was introduced and once cars were introduced and once the rail systems were introduced. All we do is make ourselves busier with other stuff, right? No, I'm not going to let you get away with that one, only because this change is massively different. This is not like the internet. It's not like the car thing. It really isn't. And if you've, I don't know, sure you have used uh, the AI systems out there, but there are thousands of these companies now. Yeah. Obviously, a couple have got very, very famous. Yeah. But the ability now for this to change is much bigger than cars or roads or horses this is well let's take supermarket okay so supermarkets are yes much simpler than ai but before the supermarket you had to go to you know maybe six different locations to get your groceries and um and, and before cars you had to walk to do that so that took a lot of time so now we've got cars we've got um, and, and products being delivered to our houses and um you can go and get what you shop in one place so in theory Yes, nowhere near the speed of AI, but that should have reduced the time we have to spend on that stuff probably by fifty percent to be to to, to downplay. Yeah. Have we all found that we've got more leisure time in that fifty percent, or did we just make ourselves busier with other stuff? Well, I mean, yeah, we make ourselves busy with the stuff, which is a, a deeper point. But what you're talking about is 
um, buying of things and, co and commercialism, and you could argue with mobile phones and all these other things, it can now yeah. become much quicker than ever before. My point is, from a work point of view, from the future of work, and remember, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Yeah, we're talking about an eight-hour shift at work. That yeah. will disappear. And if that disappears, you know, it's just like how the washing machine created a massive political movement because women didn't have to wash clothes all the time. That's just the washing machine. If you mm -hmm. don't have to work, if you can work 20% of your time, the question for you is, what will you do with the other 80%? Is there a chance that AI will just create loads and loads more work like the internet did? I, I think there will be a lot of other jobs that will will, will exist, yes, because... This is what we thought, because this, this has happened, hasn't it? Like, like okay, so machines like we used to do something similar though not different scale of course but machines so we used to do coal mining we used to do production line work and then machines came along and it was like and we had the luddites and like if these things come along no one's going to have any work so we need to destroy the machines and obviously that never happened the machines came in and what happened was, was actually more, more jobs were created we got more yeah. yeah so is there not a potential that that could happen well, absolutely. But we don't, the, I suppose the difference is, and I've got to be careful with words, but with AI, because of all the other technologies it sits upon, there is a potential that this is much bigger than before. Also, you talked yeah. about speed and scale. So yeah. you look at something like the telephone, it took 72 years to get to 100 million users. Yeah. The AI took two months. Yeah. Now, if, if you look at AI and how quickly it's growing and its potential, I'm not talking about just for the Western world, I'm talking about for the globe. There yeah. is a huge change that happens from a social move more than anything else yeah mm -hmm. so i'm not saying there won't be seo will be replaced with ieo or whatever you know it'll be artificial get, get to the top of artificial intelligence things yes you'll have artificial intelligence trainers specialists yes of course you will you have all these things will they will that be enough to replace the 80 percent of knowledge workers that it might displace no but remember they're not people aren't going to die here we're talking about people moving jobs great mm -hmm. well they'll move into nursing they'll move into teaching they'll move into things that human beings are better at than computers are yeah we, remember we weren't always all lawyers and doctors and coders we didn't used to all be these things like, this is the point i'm making so it might it, there is a potential it's just going to create more jobs and put more people into roles that are more aligned to what they actually want to do absolutely well, this is what i'm hoping i'm hoping that the future of work itself it just means we can become more human it's, it's not we become more like machines we become more human and more humane and it's the, what it's going to be interesting though is a lot of white collar job and what people who have a lot of power in the world they will suddenly realize that actually the real jobs the really important things like social work teaching nursing those things because we don't remember we have an aging population it's not getting any no, no one's getting any younger our aging population is going to be a problem and you want to know what the problem for the future the future job's going to be it's going to be looking after your mum and dad if you look on our high streets, for example, you know, yes, there's less shops now because people buy stuff online. But I'll tell you what, there's more of there's more coffee shops and more people spending more money on coffee shops yeah. because yeah. it's just like, well, I still want to go out. You know, the shopping wasn't the only reason I went out. It was because I wanted to go out, be around people because it's just the natural human trait. So so what's happened is, well, people don't buy stuff online. People don't buy stuff at shops as much anymore. So it's like we've become more of a service based economy. People are spending a lot more money on haircuts and people are spending more yeah. money on going out for coffees and cafes. So that. The point I'm getting at is it's just that these things can be replaced with more good stuff in theory. If no, you, I'm totally you saying coffee's good. <laughs> well, but, um, all right, Dan, we're on, we're on time. So, um, and we're getting a bit lost on the AI tangent, which was going to happen. Um, let's, <laughs> can, can you, if you, if you had, if you were talking to Dan uh, with one of his teams a few years ago, and, you know, if you were talking to Dan before he had his team walk out of him, but you've still got the monitors, so it's not the end of the world. But if all that happened, if you could go and talk to Dan and give him a bit of a pep talk when he's in that new kind of leadership role and maybe making some mistakes that he didn't understand at the time, what's the top three tips you would have given to yourself as a young leader, manager, to um, from the knowledge and insights that you've got now? Key one for me would be uh, embrace the idea of servant leadership. You're here to serve the team. They're not here to serve you. Mm -hmm. And that's how you become more successful. The yep. other one would be, number two would be, give yourself and them more time. Yep. And your job is to create that space of psychological safety, which is not a concept I understood, and that takes time. And then the third one would be, make sure that you know people's motivations yep. and you are make sure that you align and you recruit the right people based on that understanding, not just based on whether you think they are good at whatever it is they're meant to do, because actually that bit you can train in, but actually the the deeper stuff, you know, and then I'm sorry, I'm going to do four because I'm naughty. Um, your soft skills are actually the hard skills.
And, and that's what will make the difference to your life is your softer skills and all the stuff that people then 10 years ago call soft skills. You know, they're the hard things. Uh, technical ability is, is not going to be as important as you think. Mm, fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Dan. It's been a whirlwind conversation as I knew it would be. If you would like to connect with Dan, definitely reach out to him on LinkedIn. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty unique name. So hopefully you'll find him and Dan stands out very clearly uh, with his well, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I'll spell it. I'll spell it for people just in case, Mike, because we say it stands out, but it might do put a U in it, but it's, yeah. so it's Dan and it's just S-O-D-E-R-G-R-E-N, which is Sodegren, half Swedish, half Jamaican, but no one ever realized, no one ever sees the, the half Swedish bit. I don't know why not. Me neither. Can't, can't think about why. Uh, so connect with Dan on uh, LinkedIn. You can find out more about Your Flock there. If you just hit Your Flock into Google, Dan's talked about that quite a bit today. So you can just get that into Google. It's going to come up anyway. But I'd highly recommend connecting with Dan and keeping up tabs with the stuff that he puts out there. He always puts out great content. And he's also a super forthcoming guy. So if you want to connect with him and have a chat, he, he will definitely be back to you. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. And... Uh, I'm excited to see all of what you come up with in the future. Thanks, Mike. You're a star. <laughs>